Happy Monday, everybody. How's it going? It's going well. Welcome, Colin. Great. Thanks. What's up, Colin? How you doing? Doing great. How are you guys? Good. Doing very good. Yeah, have a good weekend? Yeah, pretty. I mean, I'm deep in birthday party season, so my eight-year-old had three this weekend, which is a lot of birthdays. That's a lot of kids, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> like a lot of kids at birthday parties. Yeah. Oh, it is. Okay. That's pretty fun. Do you have them at your house or did you go somewhere else? Oh, no, no. These were not mine. So okay. I, was, That's good. I was a consumer of birthdays this weekend. Nice. I was too. Yeah. My, one of my kids had a, a birthday. Then they also had the, uh, um, I guess, the, I don't know, after school party. Everyone was out. So like we had like 25 kids roaming around our house. That was, uh, oh that was a blast. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I've started to embrace it. You know, it's just, it's cool. They can all show up. They, they won't be supervised, but you know, they can be here. Yeah. No, it's, it's cool. I don't know. Kids are fun. So, so um, anyway, uh, um, yeah, for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is Colin. Uh, I am the CEO and founder of a company called Omni, and we are trying to reinvent data analytics. So I spent the last eight years at a company called Looker, um, and a group of us felt that uh, we could, you know, try it again and, and improve on some of the mistakes that we made. And so we're, uh, we're building Omni, and we're trying to balance sort of the best of Looker style data modeling with uh, sort of the flexibility and ability to visualize of things like Tableau and just writing SQL directly. So trying to balance between governance and centralization and end users that are happy and able to do their work on their own. So I, th I think we have to ask the obvious question, which is mm -hmm. what, what was it that motivated you to start the company? Like what was the problem you saw fundamentally? Yeah. I, so I'd say there's like kind of stacks of problems. So on the, on the personal side, it's just, you know, getting acquired is tough and uh, big companies operate differently than smaller companies. So I think there was sort of like a desire to get back to the roots of building and sort of doing things anew. So I, I guess like the quick background is I was the fourth customer of Looker, got very close with the early team, joined as about the 40th employee, ran uh, product analytics, customer success. So a whole bunch of different things there. Um, but a lot of it personally was just sort of get back to building and working with customers like getting to spend time with customers on a daily basis um, versus, you know, like getting code launched through a process is a really different type of job. And then I think on the product side, um, I mean, it was kind of interesting because you can't really argue with the success of Looker. Like it was such a big outcome and yep. we did so many things right. Um, but there was always this sort of this personal tension where um, I love the idea of this sort of data model that I can just go, self-serve from and ask questions and I don't have to write SQL all the time, but I actually found myself writing a lot of SQL and working around mm -hmm. the data model a lot. And there was always this sort of slight dissatisfaction where by using this governed data model, um, sort of the implicit thing that you were buying was like a lack of trust in your end user. It was sort of like everything has to go in this data model or it's not official. And, and I get that, like on average, that is true. But for example, when I did all of the due diligence, I, I did most of the analytics on the due diligence for the deal. I was just writing a lot of SQL. And I was sort of just like, this is ridiculous because sometimes I need to write SQL and move quickly and do things in a sloppy way to just get an answer out. And sometimes I want to take time to be thoughtful about my data and get in deep and do, you know, things with foresight that will build an environment that other people can self-serve from. And I felt like every tool was either this very decentralized tool, a la Tableau, desktop, um, Excel is obviously an example too, or it was very rigid and centralized. And a lot of the thesis was if we start from ground zero with a tool that wants to be both decentralized and centralized, can we actually make both of those worlds work well together? Can we actually make a tool where a workbook someone can self-serve in and be slopping around on their own, and then it can become governed with a data team and data engineering and sort of like real code practices behind it over time? Um, and that's what we're trying to build. Nice. Yeah. A lot of this really resonates. I mean, the no code tools are nice until you need to do SQL, which if you have power users on your team, you're always going to need to do SQL at some point, or even like your no code ETL tools. They're really great when you have simple drag and drop transformations, but you do anything exotic and then suddenly it's harder than just using SQL because writing SQL becomes hard. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Matt or Colin, I mean, how many times have you found yourself uh, operating 100% within the guardrails of, of local, local tools? I mean, it, right. exactly. Like, yeah. But, I, but I, I think it's funny because 
the 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 sort of vendor point of view would be like, okay, then don't use any any no code tools. And I think that was sort of a mistake also because there are so many things that I can self serve through like a really basic dimensional data model. Um, like I want to point and click and filter by location and time and stuff. Like I don't like writing SQL, but it's a very effective way to get data out of a database. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because it feels like you're trying to meet people where they are then, right? Um, which is, it should be like an obvious enough insight with tooling companies, but... It is, yeah. It, but like in know. some ways also, we're trying to do everything at the same time, which is like the... I mean, that's that's our fear also is that we're not great at either side. So like mm. if you want to do Looker, we're not good enough at that. And if you want to be Tableau, we're not good enough at that. So we need to be... We need to be great at both sides, which I think is the hard part. But that is exactly like that is the sort of obvious pitch for the company, which is always so strange is sort of like, let's make end users as productive as they want to be so they can self-serve and answer their own questions. And then let's make it so the data team can pick up their work and make it scalable and correct. Um, and it, but, it, but it's hard because like it, as soon as you give people freedom, they can be wrong. And so you need to be comfortable in a state where you don't have sort of complete control and the, and the product is not bulletproof, um, which is uncomfortable for some people. Some people want the rigidity of lack of self lack, lack of like true self-service, which, which is kind of strange to say, but um, people want to make that trade-off sometimes. And yet I think in practice, you, those guardrails never work 100% of the time, even if your system is totally rigid, people find ways around them. I mean, completely. Like, I, I will never forget that I was at a dinner in New York with, this is with Looker, and, and someone was sort of telling me that they want to be able to put SQL on dashboards. And I was sort of like, oh, tell me about why. Um, and they were like, oh, well, I, I want to be able to transpose tables, and you guys don't have transpose. So what I do is I write queries, and they're in pure SQL, and then I drop them into the data model as a derived table so that I can visualize uh, sort of calculations transposed. And I was just horrified. I was like, this is... This is the worst of all worlds because you are modeling queries in SQL and then you're dropping them into a data model just so you can pivot them on their side. Um, and I think that's like, that was sort of, that, that was like literally one of my takeaways was sort of like, oh my God, we need to let people poke through because this is not more official because it's in a data model and it's versioned. It's just harder to change and sort of clunkier. Um, and so like, I think if you don't let people poke through, they find a way and the system doesn't get more robust it gets less robust and that's i think like one of our core theses is that by being less rigid we can make the model cleaner because it can be smaller and and people can do ad hoc things that are sort of fragmented from the model in a sort of um more ad hoc way i, I guess i should ask a um a, a dumb question but an important question colin what does a data model mean to you I mean, this is a tough one because um, I, I think I, uh, I had a vision of what a data model was going into Looker. And then at Looker, I sort of had that beaten out of me for the, uh, the sort of YAML style uh, data ORM that is Looker. Um, but I, I feel like there's, there's two levels of a data model now. There's the physical schema of your data. Um, and I would include database views in there, but sort of anything prior to the database, I think is the sort of classical version of a data model. It's, it's like literally how the data is structured um, and the way that it needs to get extracted out of the database. And then I think there's the sort of modern version of the data, the data model, which is the sort of mapping of joins and virtualized fields and columns in the database, and I guess primary keys, so that a sort of BI tool can consume them. And I think that Looker is sort of tilting me towards thinking the latter is more of a data model. But I think at its core, both of those things are a data model that needs to be understood. Um, and ultimately, modeling data is sort of the interplay between that sort of front-end version of a data model, the sort of data ORM, and the sort of back-end version of a data model, which is like the physical schema and the sort of pipelines that lead to that. How do modern tools change the discussion? Because you had this very traditional like star schema approach that, that came yep. about in the relational days and fundamentally the modern tools, BigQuery, Snowflake, Redshift, what have you, are columnar databases. They work a little yep. differently. They perform differently. Yeah, I mean, the simplest thing, honestly, is as just uh, someone who sort of learned this on the job is that they let you be a lot lazier. Um, databases fair. are just 
they're faster and cheaper. So I I think where we had to be thoughtful about performance in the past, like I, I, I remember sort of the first, um, sort of analytics setup I had was at this company called Hotel Tonight, which again was an early Looker customer. And we were just on top of the production MySQL. And if you try to use some of the ledger tables and join them through other things, it just, it didn't work. Um, Like the data was just physically too slow to return. And there's kind of two solves for that problem, which is one is you can reshape your data into uh, like still a row store or maybe a columnar database. Or two is you could, and what we did, was we bought Redshift and we put it all in and then the query started working again. And so I think that in many ways, the sort of modern data warehouse has let us be really lazy about data modeling. And I'd be clear, like, I think that's a good thing because it lets you extract data via something like Fivetran, dump it in a database, and then immediately start asking questions without any thought at all. I think the sort of complementary problem that has come with that is that people are now sort of think that that is the sort of scalable way of doing data analysis is that you can just start that way and sort of you're good. And again, like with small data, you probably can, um, like you can just dump it in a database and start querying it. And if you're on a snowflake small and it works, you know, you're already at the smallest increment. So why, why bother optimizing? But I think the, the problem that any sort of data engineering person will tell you is as data gets bigger, you actually have to be thoughtful about these things. And I think that, is not a component of modern data modeling. Like a lot of modern data modeling is really just about getting the answers out of your database and less about the sort of performance um, characteristics. And so I, I think because it's gotten so easy to get started and and sort of not think about the shape of your data, um, we've sort of unlocked the sort of V2 of problems, which is like I have a whole uh, business that is modeled to my end users' tastes. Um, because it's it's a modeled in Looker, modeled in Omni or something like that. And anyone can ask questions of it. But it costs me a lot of money and it's not very performant. And I've got these sort of daily background jobs that are running that cost me $10, $50, $100 a day that, I, that I'm not really watching. Um, and I think those are the sort of secondary problems that we now need to start fixing. I, I would add in a, probably a third major problem too, which I keep seeing over and over. And I see some of the symptoms of this in, in the comments here. Uh, people talking about our star scheme is still valid, and, and et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that when you go back to the history of data modeling, right, it, it's the, really the nugget. And, and the reason we do this, if you take a step back too, it's, it's to derive um, a cohesive sense of what are the business concepts and, the, and the, the definitions and the processes and the rules we're trying to encapsulate in the data, right? And yep. what, I've, what I've noticed is, um, you know, the modern data stack has been great in terms of getting people more, I guess, into the data. Um, the problem is, is that uh, we, we, because everything is so, so easy, um, it's become so hard uh, to make sense of data in a lot of ways, right? So we, we've, the convenience of querying data is at the expense of having the fidelity um, and I would say the integrity of the business definitions. And so it's just back and forth, um, you know, with the business often like, well, what do you mean by this metric, right? Now, it's one of the things that Looker, uh, I think, attempted yep. to solve is having a coherent, um, sense of, uh, you know, encapsulating a concept and a definition, whether it's absolutely, a, a it's just it's, dimension, right? Yeah. I, I do think the flip side though, is that even with looker, it's so fluid that, um, you're not forced to do the planning up front about sort of what the data model looks like. So like a really trivial example that comes up with so many different ETL services is they just dump, they dump deleted records. Um, and so it's really easy to set up views on top of deleted records where you can just start asking questions. Then you're like, you realize five minutes later, that's like, oh, okay, I've got a bunch of deleted records in here. I, I need to go filter those out. And I think when you do classic dimensional data modeling, you're you're building those entities more thoughtfully upfront. Um, and so you're actually investing in thinking about sort of what the entities are and the data that you need to ask questions about them and sort of where facts need to get built, um, where kind of in the, in the sort of, Omni looker DBT style of the world, you can just sort of iterate, um, which again, like I, I think there are good things about that, but it's, if, if you're being super lazy about it, um, it's just really easy to sort of slowly dig yourself a hole. Oh yeah. Cause I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, so we, we, uh, we were partnering with looker for a while too, and I've been using looker for a long, long time. Um, 
And, and one of the things that, you know, because the, the point of like, uh, look at Mel back in the day, I think you'll, uh, you worked on this was like, it was to hopefully shrink the, the footprint of, of definitions and, and measures not to explode them. But then I, I look yep. at some look ML files, like, holy crap, there's like about a hundred different ways that people have interpreted these different metrics. And it's sort of a uh, sprawled out of control. Cause it's like, well, I mean, wh what are the constraints here? Right. There, there are literally no constraints or to me doing exactly but like, yeah, I, I struggle with this one because like models tend to build, uh, or, looker style data models. And I'd put like DBT as sort of like a almost even worse offender here is they just only grow. They don't get smaller ever. And so when you start building transformation, it starts building on top of each other. Um, and then it becomes this sort of web of dependence where you sort of step back and you're like, oh my God, I've got 55 tables that chain together so that I can sort of ask questions about revenue on my Salesforce data. Um, and I think, again, it's sort of the natural, um, it, it's it's natural um, because someone walked down that path slowly, but I think there are points in time where you need to stop and look at what you're doing and say, okay, what, mm -hmm. like, how does this need to be re-architected so that it's scalable and faster and uh, I don't know, more secure if that's, if that's like sort mm -hmm. of an important consideration because like we've given uh, sort of data analysts, we've given me that like I am this persona, the ability to, sort of stack things on top of each other in a way that is very uh, sort of uh, tenuous um, because we haven't had to go through these like really thoughtful practices of, of like building an application. Well, let me ask your opinion on this too, though. Um, what do you think about application side data modeling? Because I kind of feel like that's become a lost art as well. Um, you had ORM and you had document databases. And that's not to yep. say that document databases don't support modeling. But I think there was kind yep. of a school of thought that said, don't worry about it. Just build applications, just write records and don't worry about the details. Yeah. I mean, I sort of say this as someone who doesn't really know how to do it very well. So grain of salt on everything that I'm saying. <laughs> but I mean, perfect. I, no, exactly. Uh, but I, I do get asked like, okay, when should I use NoSQL versus like a relational database or things like that? Every time. Every, just, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. And like, <laughs> um, but like a lot of it is sort of expressing what the most important considerations are up front. Like, is it reads versus writes? Um, and like, how frequently is it getting written to and who's consuming it at sort of what latency? Um, I, I think those sorts of considerations are very, very important. Like I will tell you that having built the Looker application, like a lot of the design decisions that you make up front on data structure, you cannot rip out. Like unlike your analytics where you can sort of change it in place a little bit more easily, like the application is usually a little bit harder to re-architect. Um, and so I think those sorts of decisions about sort of just scalability, um, but also performance um, become really, really important. Like, are you willing to sacrifice a, a, a right time to be a little bit slower to make reads really fast? Um, and I think there are probably some applications where that's a great trade-off. And then on, on the other side, like, do you need writes to be instant? Um, and you'll sacrifice a little bit of read time. And I, I sort of think about this actually a, a great sort of corollary for me as like a data person is we had a little bit of this problem at Looker with performance around permissions, which is sort of like, should we run a permission mm. check on every single query, like including things that we think are cached, or should we be able to cache things for a period of time where a user has access to that thing and we're not rechecking their permission? And there, there is no right or wrong answer there. There's just a trade-off that you're making between mm -hmm. the sort of like instantaneous security of like a bit getting flipped over here and then how it persists through to the system or performance. Um, and I think we actually made the choice to optimize for security there. And I actually think it was the wrong choice. Um, Interesting. Just because paying that cost on every single query is really, really significant. Where if you say like, okay, I'm going to assume the model's correct for this entire session or unchanged. I'm going to assume the model's unchanged for this entire session. You don't need to reload the model every single time that you're doing something. Um, and I, I think those are the types of trade-offs when you're building an application you really need to think about. And I, I think it's very similar for building a data pipeline. It's sort of like, how much do you, does the user need to know to use this thing versus how much of it is sort of like self-documenting? I, I guess the other thought I have too, in addition to the considerations you bring up for applications, is that 
I think as we get further into the world of embedded analytics and applications and like real time where a user of a SaaS platform can see analytics on their data immediately, we yep. also need to bring analytics into the application side more than we are right now and make yep. that one of the trade-offs basically. I think that's true though. Like, I think that's actually a great example where you probably don't need to think about that in the application data architecture because the latency is not as important there. So if, if we know that consuming analytics out of the application is important, um, and I, I will say this because Looker was just hooked up to the transactional database for a very long time, as are uh, sort of analytics application for Looker. And it turns out that takes down the database a lot or it locks rights. And uh, I would not recommend that. Uh, we have one of our engineers that sort of checks in every time I talk about ad analytics for Omni where he's like, we're not doing that again, right? Um, but... <laughs> uh, but I, I think that's a great example where uh, sort of like the analytical application and the application itself should probably have completely different databases. And the cost there is like a little bit of complexity, but like then on one side, you get query performance and scalability on, on the other side, you get to focus on the application style problems. Mm. So like read, write um, that. I mean, other people might make a different sort of trade-off choice there because again, now we've got two different data models, um, which can be problematic, but I, again, like I, I saw someone in the comments say you're just sort of trading problems for each other. I think it's really important to think about what each system is optimizing for. And like the analytic application, if it's a day old, maybe a day is too much. But if it's 10 minutes old, do you care? Probably not. Um, now, that said, like if you're trying to build an analytic application for fraud, um, you need that to be real time. It turns out uh, like if you're trying to stop credit card transactions, you probably don't have 10 minutes. Mm hmm. Yeah, and where you're trying to generate, you're almost monitoring the data that's going into your application, then it does need to be closer to real time in many cases. And that's where, yeah, things do get more complicated and you need a lot more integration between your application analytics side. I don't know, Joe, do you have any thoughts on this? Is this a problem you've been thinking about for your book? On which part? Sorry, I just went through the comments here. Oh, sorry, no, one. totally <laughs> fine. Uh, more like the, the relationship between the uh, application data model and the analytics data model. Well, the way I've been thinking about data models is really a continuum, right? So if you if you think about when data is created, that's the first instantiation of a model, whether you call it that or not. It represents a reality you're trying to capture. Normally, that's something you get in the form or something you might get from like an IoT sensor or whatever, but it's data, right? That might be in the application, but I'm talking more kind of source system. Uh, an application may have created this, might be from an API, but regardless, right? That's your first um, chance at getting the data right. And everything else that falls from there is pretty much either you're you're going to continue the good habits uh, and carry on a, a great uh, lasting legacy with your data, or um, you're suddenly going to be monkey patching everything under existence um, and it doesn't get better with time. So that's how I view it. I, I don't so uh, because you can't once once you go from say application to the quote data layer, um, it's not like you can just fabricate a bunch of stuff out of thin air. It's like yep. you, you're using the ingredients that you've been handed to you. So. So I do, the essence of what I've been writing about really is you need to get it right at the, at the top, it, you know, and that, that's um, one thing I've been really thinking about is how do you um, get data correct in a, um, I guess Dave McCollum would call this a data centric, uh, you know, um, way of looking at the world and looking at applications. Yep. Uh, but I do think that that's um, really the shift uh, I've been thinking about. Because if you can't get it right there, then again, you're just monkey patching everything under the sun yep. and it's, it sucks. No, really, really strongly agree. Like I, I'm thinking of examples and just sort of my experience where um, like if you're not thinking about some of the analytical use cases in the application. So like a really simple example is that um, like maybe your application tracks like usage, but it doesn't put a user on them or it doesn't put the permissions for that user on the yeah. actions. Then the problem is every single time you're looking I, I'm talking about this because we didn't do it. I know how painful it was. Uh, <laughs> like if you're trying to track different types of users now and how they use your application, now you're joining permissions into every single thing a user does. And so you've essentially volunteered now to write like a, I don't know, like a three layer join into every single query you have about users because you always need to check like is the user an admin or is the user not an admin? And that could have been solved by putting an is admin yes, no flag on every single action. And Again, like that might not be the right trade-off to make in all cases, but being able to do a little bit of thinking around the corner of like, how is this going to get used and, and sort of for what pieces mm -hmm. um, is really, really important because that might be the difference between like 
being able to query at the data and not being able to query at the data. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Actually, got a, got a question here. Um, um, I know you had some strong opinions on one of these things here. Uh, <laughs> semantic layer versus data model versus ontology. Um, well, let's start with semantic layers. What are your thoughts, Colin, on semantic layers? Yeah, I mean, I... I feel so weird saying this over and over again, but as someone who worked at Looker, but I just, I really hate the concept of the sort of headless semantic layer. Um, and, and the reason is actually a sort of a lot of the things that we're talking about, which is like, I think the data model either needs to attach to when data is getting produced or when it's getting consumed. And the semantic layers come in and sort of said like, hey, we're gonna bridge the gap between both of those sides and we'll sort of be the universal layer for everything that you do. And I think the challenge tends to be that it's actually neither because it is neither the application architecture nor attached to the sort of BI layer and the consumption layer. And so it's this sort of indirection that is theoretically uh, very elegant, but I think in practice is just um, uh, sort of a little bit clunky and, and sort of put another way, I think the underrated superpower that people did not take away from Looker was not that it had a data model. Um, obviously, the the Looker style data model was very was sort of the core reason for the company's success, but it wasn't the model in and of itself. It was the coupling of the model and the BI layer, so that when you were building a dashboard or a piece of content, you were also modeling data. And again, like what type of modeling? Not the not the dimensional kind, uh, like right. not the deep the deep kind, but it was a just in time data model that you were building. And so you were taking a concept that you were building for a dashboard. And you were actually making it universal across all the content yep. that was getting consumed. And that was the true power. And I think the problem is now, um, because of sort of DBT and now the sort of headless semantic layer, we're saying, don't go build that piece of content. What you first need to do is you need to drop out into another tool and maybe become another type of user. Go do this change, publish this change, push it forward. Like, I, I don't know if there's a latency when you actually push that change and then you can go build your piece of content. And I think the whole idea that a user is going to tolerate that is just sort of like comical. Um, and I almost think a better sacrifice is just like go slam SQL onto a dashboard and then figure it out later. Um, but like, I think that someone needs to be thinking about that trade-off of like making things universal and what the cost of that is and when you do it um, in the sort of life cycle of an analysis. I guess tying that it's not in this question. What what are your thoughts on data contracts? All, let's bring is in all this, the controversy right here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a tough one because um, I think when I first read about them, I said I hate it. Um, okay. And the reason I said that is because I think that the implication that I read into it was sort of like every single thing that you do is now tested all the way back to the application. And I think that my the answer i've come around to and this is going to be kind of the weakest version of the answer is like i think that you have to have them in certain places and that you have to not have them in other places um and that sounds a little bit silly but like in the example where we're producing analytics in our application and people are reporting out of our app we obviously need some sort of contract layer that's making sure that data is correct we need like our application reporting is an application and thus it needs to have tests up and down and we need to make sure the data is correct. The tail of your event stream that is dumping into a database that is like your logs or something like that, your logs, they probably shouldn't break, but they can break or they could break in a way that would impact no one and is not worth a lot of time and effort, where the effort to set up a proper contract might be more costly than the effort to go fix it when it's broken. And this is probably not like, I, I think this is probably for a data engineering team to decide more than it is for an end user to decide. But I, I think okay. with the thing with contracts is we need to consider the cost of enforcement and sort of creation alongside the value that we get out of them. Right. And where that trade-off is positive, we should put them in. And where the trade-off is not positive, we should not put them in. And again, like advanced common sense there. But I think jumping to putting contracts on everything is probably a bad trade-off. And I similarly think that not thinking about the areas of your data pipeline that are business critical are probably equally um, sort of problematic. Right, and, and Jason Taylor, hey Jason, how are you doing? LinkedIn user for today's purposes. LinkedIn user, AKA Jason. Um, 
Um, hot take. Aren't data contracts just a reflection of people not talking, working well together? Um, I'll give you my take. Yes, I, I think so. I, I feel like um, it's um, it, it addresses the uh, the symptom of this, right? I, I don't know that it... And this is what I mean by going back to the app. I wish, you know, my utopian version of uh, Jonestown for data, um, data teams and application teams talk to each other a lot and, uh, you know... Um, you know, but that's, but you know, we may need hard enforcement too. I don't know. What do you, what do y'all think about this? Is this a reflection of people not talking or working well together or is it uh, or can we play nice and have contracts? I'll take a partial counterpoint and say that you, we need people to talk, but sometimes things are still going to slip through, right? Someone makes exactly. a commit, yeah. makes a change. Yeah. It happens. Go ahead, Colin. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I was going to say the exact same thing, which is like, I, I think people can communicate great and like great intentions unfortunately don't make for perfect data pipelines. So uh, I, I, I just think sometimes stuff breaks and like you don't know why, um, mm -hmm. but it helps to understand which system it's breaking in so that you can go identify those things more quickly. And like the contract essentially enforces the level of the app. The thing it's, it, it's again, like very similar to writing tests in your code base. Like, yep. yes, uh, you're going to have tests at many levels and like maybe the back end's failing and maybe the front end's failing, but it helps when the back end says like, no, I gave you the data. And then the front end is giving you something incorrect. Like now we know where the problem is. Um, yeah. I, I just also know for my engineering team that like writing tests takes time and uh, it slows down our ability to deploy. Um, and that's like a trade-off that you make as a company. But um, I, I actually think that this is like a great example for us is I think that we've debated like how much time do we spend building really, really tight tests all over the place versus deploying code. Like we made a really tiny visualization change. And uh, one of our engineers sort of talked about how the change took him five minutes and the test updates took him an hour. And that could it's, be- It a took, took an hour to write or to, to run? It took an hour to update the test because like we changed okay. the structure of the data a little bit. Wow, that's and a, so like, pretty lopsided. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> and I think that like, it's the reason that we got there is because uh, that area of the app was breaking too frequently. And so I think this is a trade-off that we decided to make to make it more difficult to change things there because it was breaking too frequently. But I, I do think that like there's a clear cost there that is sort of silent, which is like we it took them an hour to do a thing. And if we just said like, oh, we're not going to put tests here forever, uh, we wouldn't have had to worry about that. And so like you just want to be thoughtful. I, I, I think the the net of all of this is that most people are on the under-tested side of this equation anyway. So contracts are probably good for most people because almost no one is using them. But the yeah. sort of theoretical nerd problem could be that you could go too far. So you should be careful. Yeah, yeah. I know in software, test-driven development is still you know, pushed pretty hard on quite a few teams. And it, it, there's there's a lot of merit to it. Like, you know, you write your code, you, know, you just write your code and... Um, so the kids good practice, but if it, in data, we don't really do that. Right. We just write the, uh, the sequel. Then we're like, I don't know. It looks good. Cool. Although, <laughs> I, so I'd say that's half true though. Like, cause, cause I mean, at least at looker, um, mm -hmm. like looker had this concept called development mode, which is oh, like yeah, you yeah. Go into development mode. You're in a branch and you can go look at content. And I'm not going to say that everyone was going and opening up every single dashboard that they work in, but you did have this sort of very vague version of a test that you could go run which is like, I'm in a branch, I went and changed a bunch of definitions, and I can go load a bunch of dashboards and see if they work. And it's almost the most naive version of testing, but it was one of those little micro superpowers that you had where you could push changes with a little bit more confidence. And again, it could go break something somewhere, but that was actually, that was how I tested code um, for most of the content that I built. Mm-hmm. No, it's a fair way to do it. And I, I do say that Looker made it super, super easy. Development mode is a, is a lifesaver for a lot of yep. stuff. What are your thoughts on dashboards? So I I think that you need that. They're, I think they're the best thing that we've got for a lot of things. Uh, okay. So like I say this as probably someone, I, like I say this as probably our company's data analyst and the person that does the most data analysis at our company, which is I think there are things that I'm pulling up that I, that I do just want to look at. And some of them might even be sort of ego stroking. Like I want to see a line that's going up and to the right that says that we're growing. And while it might be sort of like intellectually unpopular to say that like running totals are bad, 
it does like motivate me and it feels good to like see numbers go up. Um, and so like, I do think that these dashboards as like motivators are really powerful. I think the second one is like dashboards as a launching off point to go ask subsequent questions. They're often a better starting point than sort of landing on a blank pivot table that says like, ask any question that you want, because mm -hmm. it gives you the sort of framework on how to ask about like what a user is or sort of what an account is or what data we have in Salesforce or things like that. So I think they're the right starting points actually for most things. And to even throw it back to the modeling conversation, I think by building the sort of building block dashboards that you need to monitor your company. And again, like not even take action yet, but just to monitor, you're starting to build the entities that you need to do things underneath. Like, I think that we've almost over-rotated the other way, which is like now everyone needs to be doing data science on like churn prediction in yeah. your customer base. And it's like, no, I, I literally just want to see like a count of users that were in our app yesterday and ones that used it the day before and the day before and the day before. Like the chart I look at the most is literally just like a heat map of all of our customers and how many days in the last 28 days they've used the product. Um, and it, it's just like, I'm just looking for drop-offs where like someone stopped using the product or like where a new customer started using the product. And it's like these little monitoring apps that help us identify what's happening. Um, like to me, that's the most valuable content that we have. Like that's the most valuable thing that we're doing with our data is just lightly putting it in front of me so that I can go dig deeper when I need to. I don't know. I, do you guys have unpopular dashboard takes? I'll give you one. And that is in some cases I've seen. So I, I appreciate what you're saying about dashboards. In some cases yeah. I've seen them become a distraction. Um, yep. especially hyper real-time dashboards where people will be like obsessing over the numbers from the last hour. And it's like, okay, that's useful if there's a problem with the website and we're uncovering yep. it because transactions have gone down. But yep. otherwise it's like, it's just random fluctuations. You're just staring at noise and obsessing over it rather than doing your job. Yep. Yeah, like there's a there's a local company here uh, where I live that had a yes. billboard that said binge watch your data. Um, and it was like a, you know, a stock photo of a CEO like staring at the phone. And yep. like, if you have to binge watch your company that, that hard like your company is probably in like deep trouble um, i think that is probably true <laughs> there's probably something like catastrophically yeah. wrong i, I so, think that it's i'll i'll make like i'll make two opposing points now so okay. one okay. is that we we had this dashboard at looker and it was like a it was the quarterly dashboard that just monitored how we were closing business and mm -hmm. it was like a little running total of what percent of quota we've hit on the quarter and it also showed the pace that every previous quarter took and every deal that came in and I'll tell you, on the last day of the quarter, everyone sat on that dashboard refreshing it, watched deals come in. And it was yeah. like one of those things that rallied all of us for like, you know, the last three hours of a quarter, which yeah. like if there was no dashboard, just wouldn't have happened. So that was like the really positive sure. version. The, th this is sort of reminded me that I remember that we did a bunch of analysis one time. Uh, we, were, we were trying to tune pricing. And I've sort of, I, I asked the data team to, look into sort of how people are using the app in a bunch of different ways because I'm trying to figure out pricing. Like I'm trying to make this exact decision, like where are the cuts? What is our margin across like different infrastructure? And what was interesting was that they came back with a dashboard and it didn't, it wasn't actually able to answer the questions that we needed to answer. Hmm. Um, it was like, it was 20 or 30 different slices of data but it wasn't actually a tool that we could use directly to make a decision. Like the, the, the task was like, where do we draw these cuts based on margin and sort of like, how are people using and how will people break? Yeah. Um, and the answer was a dashboard. And I think that is the mistake that we do fall into with dashboards is that like the only output that we can provide is a dashboard. So we mm -hmm. say like, great, I grabbed 25 things. Like, here's your answer instead of going back to the sort of original task, which is like, I'm trying to make this decision yeah. and I want you to make this decision for me or like argue for an answer. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't know, at some ways, like I don't want to blame the dashboard because not really the dashboard's fault, but it is in some ways it was sort of it's the dashboard's a, fault. Well, it I, I think it's, I think it's how you're incentivized or how you choose to use a dashboard, right? I mean, to your point, a, a dashboard's an inert object, just like your phone is an inert thing. Like, exactly. Like, on its own, it doesn't do anything. Um, but it's, yeah, so the binge watching comment, it's like, if you happen to mainline your business information every second, quarterly is different, right? End of, end, of, yep. end of day there, it's like, you better be watching your numbers, even though yep. 
probably not a lot you can do about it. At, yeah, you can't do anything about minutes. it. But it just feels <laughs> just good. Like, call the customer. Get get him a deal. Uh, but uh, but you know, I, I experienced this once uh, with a startup I was at where the um, uh, companies kept asking for real time. Uh, like a real-time dashboard. I'm like, okay, so if I give you this, like what's the action you're going to take on this information, yep. right? Like, well, we want to do X, Y, and Z. It's like, cool. So how about I just automate that for you? And then I'll give you a dashboard of like what happened after the fact. Because I think for you to constantly stare at this thing is ridiculous yep. um, if you just give me a heuristic of what you're going to do. So we just programmed it. And so that's how I view a lot of the, the, the world. Like a dashboard's good, I think, um, to give you, a, you know, something that that either tells you what's been done or like, I think to your point, gives you some information that you can take an action on, but just simple descriptive stuff that you're just kind of, um, I think it kind of blends into the woodwork after a bit too. Like you get dashboard fatigue. Yep. Um, I know that I do this all the, all the time. Um, yep. It's like, just, it's just like staring at a, a wallpaper or something. I don't know after a bit. It's like, it is now, it's, now that you said so. that I have a sort of like quippy, but I, every probably real time <laughs> data problem should either be an application or it should be like a 15 minute batch. Because like mm. if you truly need it real time, you probably need a robot to go work with it. Bingo. Yep. And if it's not real time, then you might as well do it batch. Um, and I feel like that's the sort of embedded, like, do you really need real time stuff? Um, probably not. But I, I think real time is actually really useful for customer facing problems in many cases to let the yep. customer know what's going on and not for dashboarding, right? To say, the, tell the customer, hey, this happened with your account. For example, fraud detection, right? Yep. Instead of it just being automatic, we ask the customer like, hey, did you make this charge? That, that's a perfect use case for real time. No, that's, that's exactly right. And, but like, and I think that's the whole point is like, it needs to get applicationized at that yeah. point. Like, yeah. it's not mm -hmm. like, hey, here's a real time view of stuff that's happening in your environment. It's no, it's like, Hey, like this looks sketchy. This looks sketchy. Like approve this. Interesting. I guess one one thing I like to ask um, all my friends who uh, run BI companies is, what are your thoughts on how um, generative AI and large language models are going to impact uh, uh, business intelligence and analytics? I again think I'm on sort of unpopular side of the spectrum here. <laughs> okay, great. Um, <laughs> no, it's. I mean. It's incredible the things that they can do. I'm trying to soften my point of view. Like it, you should it go really hard, is... man. No, you need to go hard. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, I mean, I, I will say, like, our engineering team has been sort of shocked at how productive it, like GPT-4 especially, has made them um, at writing code that they, like, at writing not thoughtful pieces of code. So, like, getting inputs that they need to restructure. I think on the data side, the point that I would make is that we can have we can have sort of a language model write SQL, but there's sort of two different types of people that can use that. There's people that can read the SQL and people that can't read the SQL. And if you can read the SQL, I think that it can make you a little bit more productive potentially. Um, but I, so like, I, I think it could be valuable for those users to sort of template out SQL. If you can't read the SQL, then it's a true black box. And I think it's probably very difficult unless the precision gets much, much higher. And the reason is just because if if you if it's writing you something in a just a complete black box that the end user has no control over and it can't explain to you what it's doing, and the sort of unit of object that it's providing you is a SQL block, it's very difficult for an end user to disambiguate the answer. Mm -hmm. So sort of my point of view is like unless it's going to write you a modeled query into your BI environment, where effectively the BI's model has explained to you the query that has been written. I think it's very difficult to say that like the black box is just going to work. Like we've actually been playing around with it and it'll like, it'll hallucinate columns. It'll put aware on like a location, but it'll use the wrong location column or something like that. And, and these are fine. Like it, it's very good at writing really hard queries, which is like, I need to write a three level deep fact table of like, uh, window functions of like how productive users are by month and region. And then I need to sort by them. Like that's the kind of stuff that I don't like to write as, as sort of like a SQL person that is really difficult SQL to write where it can sort of be productive. But I, I think this idea that just like data can turn into a black box sort of input, I, I think is like a little bit naive. Um, I, I do wonder whether like the semantic model or like really, really well manicured data sets can help mitigate some of these problems. But again, like I think unless there is an enforcement mechanism that is checking that it fits in the constraints of like a data environment, 
to me, it's like effectively worthless because like, I just need to go check every single one of them. And like, I, at that point, I'd probably rather write a UI query unless it's really, really, really complex. But like, what are we going to do if a, if a, if an LLM gives you like a 200 line SQL statement, are you going to be like, yes, that's, I'm going to go with that. Like that answer looks correct. And I'm going to go start moving. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're saying, if you had trouble, like diagnosing the, uh, the, the 10 liner, okay. The, oh, let's do the 200 liner for sure. That's going to be way better. Yeah. So. But, it, but if you're like, <laughs> Hey, LLM, can you throw a regression line on this? And it mm. like, it can write you a least squares in SQL and go spit it out and put it on a chart. Like I trust it for that. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, I gave you the bars and you threw a least squares on it or like, you like put an outlier detection algorithm on this and put some error bands on it. Like, I think those are the kinds of things that could be really interesting where it, it sort of like lightly applicationizes the, the data management of like post-processing. But I think to get that original question and make it right is going to be pretty, I don't know. I, I don't believe it. Well, but we're trying to make it. Well, to make it repeatable too, right? Because the, the outputs are non-deterministic. And so exactly every time all three of us could type in the same question and we'll get different answers. Yep. So that's, that's kind um, of the crux. I mean, we are trying to play with it because like I, yeah. the, the softening is like, if I could make it spit out an answer that is fully composed in our UI, for example, like if I said you can't do anything except click fields in our UI, I, and it can't do this kind of stuff yet. But if it could do that, to me, that is a much more effective tool because now it's working in the sandbox that describes things. Like it still might click on the wrong fields and stuff like that, but the UI state can perfectly reflect what it did. The, the, the SQL block itself, I just think is very, very difficult to work with. As anyone knows, it's gone and tried to debug someone else's SQL. Like it's effectively impossible to, to take like 500 lines of SQL and do anything with it. It's a write-only uh, language, right? <laughs> I don't know, Matt, did we ever have any problems with that in the classes that we taught on SQL? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> except, except when all the students cheat and they're all like, like the same answers and you're like oh, that's easier <laughs> joking yeah, exactly. nobody ever did that in our classes um so, uh, no one would actually, dare no one would dare do such a thing like that um yeah. uh linkedin user um aka jason he has another question are all dashboards going to become thought spot style applications with uh quote good data uh good backing data models i mean it it theoretically will become easier. Like I, the, the way I always, I've been talking about this for like 10 years with Looker because we never did uh, sort of NLP, but I, I just think language models have become commodity. So like yeah. anyone can go pick up a language model and drop it into their app at this point. It, I, so like, I don't think there's going to be like a new breakthrough. Like it's going to benefit companies that have distribution that can build new UIs because like it's not doing anything differentiated at this point. It just is like this sort of non-deterministic API into your database. Yeah. I mean, I think that the breakthroughs to what you were saying earlier, Colin, is that if someone figures out how to check and validate the output and then make it yep. regenerate or go through iterator, iterative steps, that's a breakthrough on top of what we're doing now. I agree. I do wonder whether like that is going to be a unique technique or someone does it and then like five minutes later, every single tool can do it. And now we've got like languages interface. So like, I think it, I, I think it will be a more common complement to the pivot table, but I still mm. think that we will have a lot of pivot tables. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. You're you're thinking about this uh, kind of these kinds of things a while ago. Um, I've always felt like Looker had a you know kind of going back to Looker. I always felt like they're a bit more innovative than. Um, competitors i would say like i visited your office once i've actually been there quite a, quite a bit um and there's there's you got back in the day this was in 2016 2017 you had a uh, yep. vr headset um, oh yeah <laughs> you remember that one look, VR. look yeah i don't know how you're supposed yeah. to pronounce it but yeah i don't know VR app on top of Flickr. it was the best cool. one was a chart that had physical piles of money that were the uh size of the the grouping like the size of the measure that you had yeah so, <laughs> It's like, how much revenue did we do? It was like physically piled the same size as the number of hundreds would be for the revenue pile. There was, it was really good stuff. That's so cool. Yeah, well now, now we can get the uh, Apple Vision Pro and uh, reinvent all that, so. We actually almost had a bank that wanted to set up a VR data application. So they, they almost took the, 
the uh, the look VR into production, but it was just like a that's interesting. That they threw out at some point when they had budget issues. This is the well, back when back when Alexas were cool. Back when Alexas were cool, I, I was hired to um, to uh, look at building an Alexa app that would query Looker and bring yep. back uh, answers. Yeah, I'm sure you guys probably toyed with this too. Yeah, yeah, I was like, I was like, if you ask it a certain way, you'll get the answer you want. Yeah, yeah. The moment you step outside of this, it's it's like it's not going to so, work. It's like I'm still convinced that I think the like an LLM attached to a data model, I think is going to be the only way forward um, for, for a lot of these things. So I do think it makes the data model more important. And I'm sure mm -hmm. that's what a lot of the semantic layers are betting on is sort of like, oh, every app will use our semantic layer. Um, I mean, that's why everyone wants to build semantic layers is because like, if you are the semantic layer, then you can do it. I just think the question is like, why do you get to be the semantic layer? And that's a good question. I'm seeing the same argument from data catalog companies too. Yep. So they're they're also like if you can introspect the catalog, you get the meaning, and then you go from there. So yeah, it's probably a fusion of the two, to be frank. Uh, because because if you if you go by like pure column names, for example, like Lord help you, you're you're, you know, you're not. No, yeah. This, this is definitely where the catalog and the semantic layer sort of blur together. Mm -hmm. Um, because like the, the catalog is not constructing queries, but like if you wave your hands and say like, oh, the LLM will do that, then the catalog sort of is a semantic layer. Um, and yeah, I, I do think that's where it gets sort of more competitive. I, I still think the hard part is like, unless they're coupled to a visualization layer where people are actually building stuff and that they're learning from that, it's going to be very challenging because you're sort of missing the output. Actually, Gordon has a good question here. Um, uh, what's up, Gordon? Um, yeah, so the data model is uh, more important, but does that beg the question of the data quality and where that is surfaced? Where is it surfaced? Yeah, it does. Um, I, I, the hard part for me is like, I don't really know how you represent data quality. This is like, this is actually a problem that we have now, or that like sort of theoretically every BI tool has, which is like, how do you actually explain what data quality is? Um, and these sort of new data observability tools, I think in some ways have sort of started to explain data quality. Um, but the sort of the other mediating piece is like your end users kind of don't care. They just want to know whether it's green or not. Um, so like it, it's very binary of whether it's it's like quality and like is data that's five minutes delayed quality. I don't know. Like and you sort of want to explain that to some users, but not all users. I, I think this is tough in the same way that, um, sort of any application explaining its its inputs is tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a Wall Street Journal article that came out later last week that talked about how companies are like investing in data quality because they want to do awesome things with large language models and AI and and, and but it, it's interesting because I mean I so I've worked in the ML space for a while and. Um, the, the biggest things that I always see was it had to do with data integrity issues. You can call it data quality. You can call it whatever you want, but obviously if yep. you feed it into a, a model, you're going to get exactly what you, you know, let's put into it. Um, Completely. So I, yeah, I so actually, we, we built a feature for square at looker. They were, they were a big looker customer mm. and uh, the whole features crux was around not sending Jack Dorsey a dashboard that had no data on it because the ETL hadn't <laughs> landed yet. Because uh, that was like actually a problem that they were having regularly was like every so often he was just getting a dashboard that showed that all of their transactions were down by like 85% day what? or whatever. <laughs> well, just because it was missing the last days, it was missing the last day's data. So like it was just a, it was just a truncated data set. And I was like, this is just, oh no, wow, there's no magic here. It's like literally just like an org design problem orchestration right like it literally job. it yeah. was just it was like we had to hook up the scheduler to the etl cycle and that was the feature um it was like you wouldn't get it until and then and then of course you have the problem which is like why isn't the dashboard landed yet and it's like well the etl cycle hasn't landed yet so it's like all of these things are sort of at the uh the intersection of like humans and the data where like you've got to figure out how to communicate what's happening too yeah Jessica has a good point here. If the data is uh, not clean to map to the company entities, there's no value data quality in catalog. Yeah, I mean, she's got a good point. She also comes from um, you know, the world of um, taxonomies and, and so forth and data quality. Yep. But uh, yeah, I do. I mean, it's I'd be curious to see, you know, with these large language models, especially when you start incorporating foundation models into 
corporate data, say the data is completely quote of good quality and so forth. Um, yep. You know, whether it, it solves a hallucination problem or, or, you know, maybe, maybe it uses the correct data points, but it mixes them in such a way that it makes no sense at all. That's also entirely possible. So I have wondered about that too. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, it does feel so solvable though. Um, like at least the, the, like, did it give me a real answer type thing? I would think that we'd be able to figure out, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Matt, do you, do you have any uh, thoughts on hallucinations? Yeah. Again, I think the next big breakthrough is going to be something to do with checking, like, cause this is actually something the human brain does, right? Like there's this phenomenon of confabulation that some people can have with certain types of brain damage where they just make stuff up. Right. And so you have executive functions normally that work on top of the areas of the brain that make things up that check that make sure that you know you're actually saying the truth yep. and yep. I, I think somehow we you know large language models are sort of an analogy to how the brain works they're not exactly the same but i, I think there will be another step in this analogy of locality theory and having other models that maybe check each other almost going back to the days of gans uh, where you had competing models that would generate data i, I think we're going to head back into that era and then that will be even scarier in terms of singularity. Well, the, uh, but AI actually, Jessica has a really good yeah. point, though. Um, knowledge graphs are taking care of hallucinations. I've actually seen this is, uh, starting okay. to happen. Yeah, yeah. So if you have a large language model with a knowledge graph, then it um, is able to reverse something that's uh, at least like semi-factual. So yeah, yeah, yep. Um, yeah, who knows? Anyway, um, yeah. What are, I guess you know, kind of closing out. Like, what are your what are your thoughts? Uh, what are you what are you excited about over the next say two three years in, in the space? I mean, I'm I'm still very curious to see what happens to the headless semantic layer, just because mm. I, I think it's going to have such a big impact on the way that people do things if it takes. Um, like I, I would sort of say it's like I'm a little bit afraid of that future, and so I'm hopeful that that doesn't become commonplace. But sort of curious to see if it does. Interesting. I, I think I'm also really curious to see sort of how the DBT cloud versus core thing plays out. Like, do mm. people really end up doubling down on core? and dbt as a technology versus really leaning into a lot of the work that they're trying to do to drive people into cloud and sort of have it be an application service um because I, I really can't tell either way like i've seen i've talked to customers that have said like no we got rid of cloud and we went back to core and then i've also heard more people moving into cloud just because they don't want to deal with it um and i think that could have also like a very big impact on the bi layer and that's no, that's the interface that I care about the most. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I also kind of view it as a bellwether, kind of where the uh, the, the 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 VC funded part of the ecosystem goes too. Because certainly, think, certainly, there are lots writing well. on, on them succeeding. Yeah. So. Yep. It's, yep. It's a, it's a big space. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to see Mother Duck actually, and how they you know start poking it at the big guys. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the other one, right? That's that's. Uh, yeah, I'm curious to see um, what they come out with. Uh, yeah, they spoke at my meetup um, about a month and a half ago or something like that in Utah. And uh, it seemed like they're, so it, was, it was a cool presentation. It seems like they're, they're close to things and we'll see what happens. And so, yeah, um, yeah. so uh, Mehdi in the comments here earlier, you see, uh, he's from Mother Duck. So, uh, yeah, we'll so see what's happening there. Um, but, you know, it's, I think it's an exciting alternative really to, you know, dealing with the, um, you know, the giant uh, you know, big platforms and stuff. So. Time will tell. It's an exciting, it's an exciting time to be in the space for sure. I, I'm actually, yeah. I, I think I'm more stoked uh, about where things are now than I have been in a while, just because I, I think uh, um, there's a lot happening. So it's cool. I agree. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, great having you on the show, Colin. No, uh, thanks for having me. Back on. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, for people who want to learn more about you or what Omni is up to, how can they do that? Yeah. Exploreomni.com. Um, come visit us or send me a note, Colin at exploreomni.com. But uh, you know, find me, like Sick. call my phone if you need to. We'll, we'll get in touch. <laughs> but that's all the hate mail is going to go to your phone now. That's fine. My, the corporate address is my house. So that's already my problem. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. Great discussion. Cool. So, uh, yeah. Any, anything, uh, you want to plug Colin, any, any events you're going to be at soon or I'll be at this, I'll be at the snowflake conference in July. Okay. Um, but you know, we're trying to make our way to all the conferences now. You got nice. a little face in the background there. Oh, Hi. <laughs> I'm on a show. Yeah, <laughs> guess that's right. 
<laughs> that's, uh, that's my kid he probably wants to go climbing in a bit um well, yeah the joys of uh the kids being out is uh i'm gonna be hanging out with kids all summer well, which is just a lot of fun yeah you're saying about yeah you know what's up <laughs> it's it's uh it's, it's cool um but um yeah and then matt you're um you got a talk coming up yeah so tomorrow i'll be speaking at beam summit in manhattan if you're around the area and interested uh go to beamsummit.org to register and then that's going to it will be streaming i think starting on the 18th but i'll try to post something about that on linkedin once i have links and more information about the virtual version and then of course awesome. joe and i will both be at uh data plus ai summit at the end of the month if anyone's around uh give hit us up yeah, we got a couple of events there. Then uh, next week, I'm going to be in Vancouver, BC, uh, actually with uh, Gordon Hamilton and his uh, great group. Uh, going to be um, doing a couple of events there, including speaking at the uh, DEMA uh, meetup there. Um, there's a low-key happy hour in Vancouver as well. So uh, if you happen to be in Vancouver, come say hi. So, And next week, we have uh, Joe Perez on the show. So um, <laughs> got to get going. This guy's a... <laughs> it's a bit needy right now. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. We'll Thanks, see you guys, guys. later. Bye-bye. Later. Bye. See you.